0: Good morning, everyone. I want to add my words of welcome to those that have already been offered. Uh, In Jesus' name, we're glad you're here. If you're a member or a visitor, if you've come today and are a stranger to uh, Christianity, don't know Jesus, not yet a Christian, we're especially glad that you're here. We hope you'll come back and that uh, you'll ask any questions you might have about uh, the faith and the hope that's in us. Uh, We're going to read from Luke 14 today. Uh, This is the last sermon I planned from Luke 14, for now at least. Uh, We'll go to Luke 22 after this, which is the Lord's Supper institution. And at the end of that, there'll be two or three sermons, God willing, from Luke 22. And then I'll go into a series of four or five sermons on the Lord's Supper itself. So um, just to give you some heads up as to where we're heading. Um, Let me ease us into this text with uh, the thought that you and I are faced with uh, choices uh, every day of various kinds. Some of the choices we make are not too significant. Um, you know, you go to the drugstore to get some hand lotion. There are, you know, 45 kinds of hand lotion there. And, you know, yeah, there's some better than others maybe, but at the end of the day, it's not a big deal which one you get. Uh, I remember getting to the grocery store once and had a list that Sally had written. It said flour, flour, F-L-O-U-R, flour. And I thought, hmm, I found the flour, and I looked and looked and looked. Finally, I called her, and I said, you know, I believe there are 30 kinds of flour here. What kind do you want? Well, again, it's important, but not a major, major issue. Some choices we make are much more significant. How will you spend your time? With whom will you spend your time? How will you spend your money? Who will you give or to what will you give your affections? That's more significant. There's some really significant choices in certain categories. Medical, treat or not treat. Moral, do or not do. Right? Yeah. Um, This passage deals with choices that impact eternity. Choices that impact eternity, a very significant choice indeed. Let's pray. Lord, our God, help us to know and to make the right choices in regard to eternity. Um, Not everybody does. This passage makes that clear. Our experience makes that clear. Lord, I pray that every person gathered here will make the right choice in regard to Jesus, in regard to the gospel, in regard to the kingdom, as well as the king. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, you'll be with us, that you will fill our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit today. That this passage will come alive to us and we will come alive to it. And you'd use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin at Luke 14 at verse 12. We looked at 12, 13, and 14 last week, but I want to read it there for context and uh, remind you, please, that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. He, that is Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but the word of God will abide forever and forever. This word. So back in verse 1 of chapter 14, we find that Jesus is at a dinner party in the house of a Pharisee, and not just an ordinary Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, as I've said, a mover and shaker among the Pharisees, and it's on the Sabbath, and and this man is religious, this Pharisee, he's conservative, he's moral, and spiritually he's lost. Spiritually he is on the wrong track. There's a man planted across or near Jesus who has dropsy. He has edema and swelling. And he's planted there to see if Jesus will react to the need on the Sabbath day and heal him, and Jesus does. And they are not happy with Jesus having done that on the Sabbath day. Jesus then takes the opportunity to teach them uh, from the whole event Uh, where should you sit at a wedding banquet? And he tells them in a very humble place. And he does that, I think, to counter the pride of the Pharisees. And so then um, he talks about who to invite to a dinner party. We read that in verse 12 and following. And he says, look, not just your friends and brothers and rich neighbors and relatives, because they might reciprocate, and then you'll have all the reward you're ever going to get. When there's that tit-for-tat repayment, that's all the reward you'll get. There won't be any reward for you at the resurrection of the just. And so if you see saying, look, if you only want an earthly reward, then do that. But why would you do that when a greater heavenly eternal reward is possible? He tells them, look, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, So that you can be blessed in a greater way at the final day. Because those people can't repay you, but God will. I think he's talking about a way of laying up treasure in heaven. You know, he tells them that in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Lay up treasure in heaven. And this is one way I think you can do that. So what will it take to live that way? It'll take selflessness, of course. But what will it take to be selfless? It will take faith. It'll take faith to believe that the reward I might get in heaven in the future is much greater and more worthwhile than the reward I can get right now on earth. And that is something we all need to apply, uh, and it's transformative, frankly. Now, in the middle of all that, in verse 15, where I really want to start for today, I've just been recalling the the former things there. In the middle of that, there's this spontaneous comment, blessed, verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I think this man is speaking for all of the Pharisees gathered there. I don't think it's an isolated thing. I think they would have said, yeah, yeah, you know how they do in the British Parliament where somebody says something and everybody, you know how they do And I think the, the, the crowd there would have said, yes, we agree, we agree. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this refers to the coming kingdom of God. They're thinking futuristically. They're thinking of the, of the full and final, uh, the eternal and glorious kingdom of God. Now, let me give you some assumptions that I think are built in here, okay? I think he is sincere. I don't think there's any doubt about it. The man means that. The man means that, yes, I believe people will be blessed blessed of God in, in, in the eternal kingdom if, in, when they eat at his banquet table. I, I think that's, that he believes that. He's sincere about that. And I think that's true. I think the Lord's Supper points forward to the eternal supper. I've mentioned that. I'll mention that again. But there are a couple of imp- implications that might not be quite obvious. And here's one of them. The implication is, as this Pharisee says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The implication is, and I'm one of them. That's what the man's thinking. That's what the man's saying. I'm one of them. When the roll is called up yonder, I will be there. I believe that. I will be blessed that way. I think it's an expression of Pharisaical self-confidence that far there's also built in or implied in that comment that the kingdom is not yet here. That the kingdom is coming, but the kingdom has not come. And this is an odd thing because the king is sitting at the table with him and when the king began his ministry, he says that that the kingdom has come. When the king comes, the kingdom has come. And so there's a bit of 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 tension or irony there. He says, well, they'll be great when I can eat with the king and his kingdom in the future, and the king who's announced the kingdom is sitting at the table with him. Now, why does he think that he's going to be blessed in the future when the eternal kingdom begins? Well, the first one and I couldn't think of a better way to say this. And it, it, it's just, this is a horrible sentence, but I'm going to read it anyway. Past promises applied personally apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Past promises applied personally apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you ask this man, why do you expect to be there? He said, well, it'd be the promises. The promises I've heard from God, the promises in the Scripture, the promises of the coming Messiah, the promises of the coming kingdom. But it takes faith to be an owner of those promises. Faith in Jesus Christ, which he doesn't have. You know how it is... um, And I heard, I wish I'd marked this down, but in some ways I'm glad I didn't. Within the last two weeks, I heard about somebody dying, and somebody said, well, they're in a better place. Well, it was a person that didn't know Jesus, didn't go to worship, wasn't religious at all. It was that American civil religion that good people go to heaven when they die just because they're good people. That's Phariseeism. I mean, just think about it. Do you ever hear anybody say when somebody dies, well, you know, you can be pretty sure they're in hell. You don't hear that, okay? You don't hear that. Why don't you hear that? Because promises personally applied apart from Jesus Christ. And the assumption is, well, everybody goes to heaven when they die, don't they? Well, Scripture says, no, they don't. The Scripture is very clear about that. And this man is kind of like that. And it's, it's all over our culture today, in American culture anyway. So I think that that's one reason why this Pharisee, I think speaking for all these Pharisees, says, yeah, it's going to be great to eat bread in the kingdom of God in the future. And another reason he believes that is that he takes present performance to be of his present, their present performance to be of a superior nature and sufficient to gain them heaven. Sure, that's what the Pharisees were all about. We'll be good people, we'll go to heaven. We're good people, we're going to heaven. It's not by grace, they would say, no, it's by works. And, and, And so they thought their present performance was both good enough and sufficient to get them into heaven. I think, thirdly, he probably thought this way because of genealogy. What do I mean by that? Well, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is dialoguing with some of the religious leaders, probably Pharisees in the group, and he's telling them that they are of their father, the devil, and they say, hey, man, Abraham's our father. What's the implication of their saying Abraham's our father? We got the right lineage. We're in the right family tree. Of course we're going to heaven. My grandfather was a minister. I've had people tell me that. They meet me and they say, oh, well, well, you know, my aunt taught Sunday school. My grandfather was a minister. Uh, My my this person, yeah, I've got the right lineage. Really? Lineage alone does not get you to heaven. Nor does membership in the right group. They would have said, well, we're... Jews, we're Pharisees, we're in the right group. We have the right memberships. His future hope, their future hope, seems to have nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus is reclining at table with them. Isn't that astounding? I have asked people in my ministry, do you hope to go to heaven when you die? Yes, yes. Why? And the answer they would give never mention Jesus Christ. It's just like this event. Never mention Jesus Christ. You can eat with Jesus and not see Jesus. You can eat the Lord's Supper and not see Jesus. You say nobody could do that. I did it for at least a twelve years. I did it for at least 12 years before I was converted. Yes, you can eat the Lord's Supper and not see Jesus. Yes, you can eat with Jesus and not know who he is and how important he is. So, this man just kind of blurted this thing out spontaneously. And Jesus, never one to miss a good opportunity, especially at a dinner party, tells a parable. (laughs) Uh, You'd have to be bold to invite Jesus to your party, wouldn't you? So he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. And the man who gave the banquet is the God figure in the story. And um, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had already been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Let me stop there and I'll come back to it in just a minute. Because there are various stages and various invitations that are given and I want to help make them clear for you, okay? All right. So he says, look, those who had been invited. I think he's talking about the invitation that was given to the ancient Jewish nation, the promises that were given to the ancient Jewish nation, and and the revelation that was given to the ancient Jewish nation that a Messiah was coming in the future, right? These are to the ancient Jews, people like Abraham and David, uh, through the prophets, and they said, the Messiah is coming. And the, the Old Testament Jews filled in the RSVP and said, we want to come to the party. When the Messiah comes, we will come. We want, we'll save the date. Don't know when that date is, but when He comes, we will come. That was the Old Testament promise and the Old Testament expression of faith. He said, they, they had said yes to God's invitation and promised to come to the Messiah when the Messiah came for them. And so the servant goes to those people, the Jewish nation, and says, come, everything is now ready. So we go from the Old Testament... Jewish nation to then the present tense of the Luke 14 Jewish uh, nation. And the, and the servants say, come, everything's now ready. It was done through John the Baptist and through Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everything's now ready. I often say that at the table. Come, everything's now ready. Jesus had come as as the Messiah. He's going to live a perfect life for them. He's going to die a substitutionary death for them. He's come for them, and we must come to him. That's what he's saying. I've come, you must come to me. And they didn't come. They all alike began to make excuses. Now, it's interesting the excuses um, that are made. They all think, if you read these through, okay, they all alike began to make excuses, verse 18. The first said, I bought a field, and I must go and see it, please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them, please have me excused. And said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. The, and they say, well, those, surely those things are sufficient to have me excused from this man's party. And, and listen, I, I want you to realize, I, I think one of the crucial things uh, that's, that's kind of in this but not written into this is this. There's not a one of them that says, I can't come, I'm going to go rob a bank. I can't come, I'm going to go kill my neighbor. I can't come, I'm going to go commit some big sin. Everything they list, listen people, listen carefully, warn your friends and neighbors, they say, I can't come, and I'm going to do something that's okay. I married a wife. I bought a field. I've got, I bought, an oxen, bought some oxen. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with any of that stuff. Unless it keeps you from Jesus. And you can miss that in the passage. You can think, well, they wouldn't come because they were going to do sinful things. No, there was nothing sinful in this list. But anything that keeps you from Jesus is sinful, pure and simple, right? Now, the first one said, I bought a field, must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And you think, the guy's either a nut, you know, why would you buy a field you hadn't seen? I think he probably had seen it. I think he idolized it and just had to go look. You know, just go look. I mean, if I I won the lottery and bought one of these beautiful vineyards out here, I think I'd just go look, you know? Sometimes I'd just go look. And I think this man just wanted to go look because it had become an idol for him. Maybe he's a farmer. I don't know. The one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. That's something to work the, the feel with. That's like buying a tractor, I guess, today, right? I bought a tractor. I can't come. Okay. The other one, I've married a wife. I can't come either. And the the third one doesn't say, please excuse me. He just says, I've married a wife. I can't come. And look down at verse 26. We didn't read verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't think that means an active uh, hate. It means a degree of love. And he's basically saying, if I'm not the top of the list of those you love by a great deal, there's something terribly wrong. And this third excuse gives evidence to that. So the summary is this. The invitation came to the Old Testament Jews. The invitation came to the, and they said, yeah, we'll come when the Messiah comes. And Jesus came and said, I've come, come to me. And they wouldn't come. And they said, look, my business, my possessions, my family, and my fun fun prevent my coming. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds very familiar to me as a pastor. You wouldn't believe all the stuff I've heard over the years of why people couldn't be involved in the Lord's church. Why the people couldn't be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day and worship God in accordance with his commandment. You would not believe some of the stuff I've heard. People don't tell me, "Hey, a uh, pastor, I can't come this morning. I'm going to watch pornography." They don't tell you that. They just tell you, "You know, I'm going to go fishing and you know, I can commune with God while I'm fishing." Really? Well, let's just do away well with all the churches and become fishermen, right? No, wrong. He says, "Come, worship me. Worship me." with other believers. Worship me with a certain order and way. So, then there's a second invitation. So we got the Old Testament invitation. Then we got the New Testament invitation. And then we got another invitation. Second, third, I've lost count, exactly. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. The Greek word can mean he's furious. He's furious. Why is he furious? Well, he's a great man. He's a benevolent man. And he's been slighted. He's been slighted. The, the food's ready. I mean, if, if, if you invited me over and the meal is hot and on the table and, and, and I'm late and you call me up, where are you? And I said, well, I'm sorry. I was playing pickleball with some friends. I can't come tonight. What? You'd be furious. Why? Because you did all the preparation, got everything ready. I'd said I would come, and I wouldn't come. That's where this man is, except he's way more important than you or me. And so he says, look, go to the streets and lanes of the city. So see, I think we're still... What he's saying is when he says streets and lanes of the city, he's saying, go to other Jews. Go to the Jews... That don't fit with you, Pharisee, with the Pharisees. Go to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, who he mentions by name. Go to the outcast and the undesirables and the deplorables and the sinners. Those who don't fit with the religious establishment. And the servant said, Well, I've already done that. And there's still room. Thank God there's still room, because then the next invitation. Goes to the Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. As far as I know, I mean, you know, I haven't done one of those DNA tests, but as far as I know, I'm a Gentile. And I'm glad the promise went beyond the ancient Jews, the modern Jews, and and the the, the what they would call the deplorable Jews. There's still room. And friend, if you're here today and don't know Jesus Christ, you need to let that sink in, please. There's still room. There's still room for people like you. Some people think there's not room for people like me. A matter of fact, there's really, and as a pastor, here's what I've found. There's two extremes, both of which are wrong. I'm so good I don't need Jesus, or I'm so bad Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. Both of those are wrong, flatly wrong, totally wrong. Nobody's so good they don't need Jesus. Nobody's so bad that Jesus would not have them. Hmm, okay, so there's still room. Notice he says, um, go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. That's what motivates him. He wants a full house because there'd be great glory for him if his house is full. There'd be great joy among the, the people at the party. Go to the highways and the hedges. Go to the non-Jews. Go to people like you and me. Compel them to come in. Force them to come in. Urge them to come in. Insist that they come in. Uh, constrain their coming in. Uh, the Greek word, the root of it is to necessitate. And it's, 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 you know, a lot of people think, well, the gospel's an offer. And we talk about the offer of the gospel. And that's true. The gospel is an offer. But the gospel is also a command. The word is in, is in the imperative, the compel people to come in because he's a great king, a great man, a benevolent man. And then that chilling last sentence, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of them will taste my banquet. Back in Matthew 7, I remember when I was first converted, uh, reading the New Testament, and I came across this verse, and it stood, it, it stood out to me so much because it had been me. And um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, that future day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, their expectation is when the meal is served on the last day, we're going to be there. And they're deluded just like the people in Matthew 7. Why? Well, they said they would come, but they didn't. They promised and did not follow through. Perhaps they thought their membership or their baptism would save them. I don't know. But they were damned by their good excuses. They were doomed by their presumptive attitude. Because, friends, excuses don't always excuse. Excuses don't always excuse. You remember when Moses was up on the mountain with God and the people got impatient and they went to Aaron and said, hey, make us a God. We don't know where Moses is. And so he made the golden calf and God from the mountain said to Moses, you better go back down there. Moses goes down Sure enough, it's just rank idolatry. And Aaron says, well, Moses, the people brought me this gold. I threw it in the fire and out popped this thing. Really? And when that that excuse didn't excuse, right? No, it didn't. Um, When Saul, King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 was dealing with the Amalekites. He was supposed to destroy all the sheep when he went in, and, and, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, that's when, right after the uh, bad uh, outcome, you might say, of what happened in 1 Samuel 15 with the Amalekites, um, God regretted he had made Saul king and took the throne away from him. What was Saul's excuse? Well, the people, the people wouldn't do the right thing. Friend, my excuses and your excuses won't excuse either. If you've heard the promises and have said, I won't come, I want to I be there at the last day, but I just kind of like to do my thing now. That's the wrong road. These people, we would say, had bad priorities. And the reason they had bad priorities was what? They had bad values. They had bad values because values inform priorities. And they didn't value Jesus. They didn't value God's Messiah. They did not like the kind of Messiah that God sent. They didn't like the message that this Messiah brought. Grace, by grace you're saved through faith. They didn't like that message because they were proud and they wanted to earn, earn it and work their way to heaven. People today say, I value God and His kingdom and His eternal meal. But they neglect this meal. They neglect the Lord's Supper. They neglect the Lord's church. They neglect the Lord's ways. They say, we will be at the eternal meal. We want to be there. But today I'll go after other things. Today I'll neglect God. Today I'll neglect Jesus and His worship and His table and His church. Said another way, these people don't sense the urgency of what's going on he says the 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 word quickly is used in verse 21. Go to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind. Wait a minute, quickly. And said to his servant, go out quickly. Go out quickly. Uh, My experience over 40-odd years of being ordained is that there's a very low sense of urgency about the faith among people in America today. Maybe that's not with you. I don't know. But in general, I'd say there's a very low sense of urgency. You see, what they're saying is, well, God, maybe, you know, but uh, what you got here kind of messes my schedule up. And I don't want you to mess my schedule up. I'll get around to the meal. Yeah, I'd like to be there in heaven. Yeah, but God, you're messing my schedule up. You're messing my schedule up. No, I won't come. No, I won't be a part of the church. No, I won't be a servant. No, I won't do those things. But I sure do want to eat bread in the kingdom of God when it comes. A disciple takes out his schedule and says to God, you write it. A disciple says, look, here's what I think you're calling me to do, but I'm open, God, to you reorienting me and redirecting me. Some of you will think I'm being, what's the word? Alarmist, I guess. If I say to you that for some people, if they don't come when God calls, they may never come. They may never come. Because people put it off. They put the king off. They put the gospel off. They put the Savior off. You know, um, there's something in this passage for all of us to repent of. Here's another way to come at it. They were taking God lightly. Do you do that? Do I do that? When? How often? Yeah, we do, don't we? We all do. And we need to figure out when and where and how. And we need to repent of taking God lightly. The good news in one sense is that Jesus never took his father lightly. He never took the righteous demands of the law lightly. He took his Father perfectly seriously for us. He kept the law for us and died for us. He'll come again for us. He knew that we couldn't be redeemed unless he took God very seriously. I mean, you remember in Gethsemane, Father, he prayed, Father, if it's possible, Father, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. Father, if there's another way to save them, I don't want to die on the cross. Father... But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That is taking God very seriously. That is taking the whole plan of God very seriously. And so Jesus never had to make excuses for himself or for his people because he took away the sins of his people and gave them his righteousness. That's the reason he can say, Father, forgive them. And the Father does. In this passage, it says, come, everything's now ready. Come, there's still room for any sinner. Friend, don't let okay things, things like oxen and fields and family, keep you from Jesus. You know, when you're in the airport, or when we used to be in the airport, (laughs) and fly, they'll start boarding And everybody will get on the plane, and then there'll be this final call, flight, blah, 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 da, 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 da. The door's going to be closed in a minute. You see, there's urgency. I don't know. For some of you, this could be the final boarding call. I don't know. 49-year-old elder in Birmingham, it was in the church that I served. Wife and four kids. He was buried last week. You just don't know. And making excuses and putting God off is presumptive. And of all the choices you'll ever make, this is the most important by far. Jesus says, come to dinner. Confess me and come to dinner. And then you will be blessed in eating bread at the Lord's table in the Lord's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you that you cared enough to send your only begotten son to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that the invitation is now open. And we know it won't be forever. Lord, if there are any here today that are not yet people of faith, trust, and hope. I pray that your divine mercy will touch them and open their eyes and change their hearts, and that they would long for the table and the bread of the kingdom. Lord, only you can change a heart, so we submit.